Well, good morning. That is, uh, that's loud. Yeah, that's hot. Mike is hot. Um, good morning again. Man, it's, uh, it's always good to be here and to uh, not just be here together, but man, to, to sing together, to hear God's word together. Um, it's really ministering to my heart. You know, each week is, is, is different. Each week can be long, can bring its own challenges, but um, being able to be here with my brothers and sisters in Christ and hearing voices lifted high, um, I hope it's the same for you. This is, uh, this is something that the church, we get to belong to. Um, we belong to Christ and we belong to one another. And we get to share in the ministry of uh, reconciliation that, uh, between us and God and with one another as we sing songs, we hear God's word, as we eat good food and carbs and some fruit. Sorry, the fruit we brought had some bad strawberries in it. So if you guys' stomachs start rumbling a little bit later on, I apologize personally, um, but we'll be all right. So uh, today we're, we're, uh, we're going to go through a passage um, celebrating Palm Sunday, as next week we, we uh, obviously celebrate Easter Sunday and um, that our Lord is uh, risen from the grave. We have hope, not just because Jesus has died for our sins, but because he is indeed risen. And so I'm really looking forward to that, not just because we're celebrating Resurrection Sunday together, but we get to celebrate it also through baptism. Um, Nolan Blair's uh, getting baptized next Sunday, and as a church, we get, to, um, we get to celebrate him and celebrate all that the Lord is doing in and through him and his family. And uh, man, it's, again, it's a special moment of a proclamation, not that just we belong to Jesus and that he has died and has been risen from the grave, as we go under the water and come up, but also, man, we belong to one another. We belong to one another in, in the big church, the overall church, and also here at Origins. And so um, I'm looking forward to celebrating with all of you as, as uh, Nolan gets dunked. And it's going to be a little chilly, but um, I think the hot tub is heated, so it'll be a good time. But um, uh, that's the only announcement I have for things upcoming. Also, too, that you guys would just keep Matthew in, uh, in your prayers. He had knee surgery last week and is doing well and is recovering well, but obviously whenever you, uh, you know, have surgery on anything, it's uh, going to be painful and it's going to be recovering. So continue to pray for him and also send him a text of encouragement. Tell him you love him. He's uh, just such a great leader for us in this church and uh, um, encouragement. Can, you can never have enough encouragement. And so tell him you love him, you appreciate him, and that you're continuing to pray for, for his healing as well. And so, but, uh, so yeah, anyway, we're, we're going to get into the text. We're going to be in John chapter 12 verses 12 through 19, and uh, we'll also be in uh, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, um, just, just for a moment. Um, John's gospel and Matthew's gospel, as they're writing these two accounts of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, they both use a snippet, a little part of Zechariah's prophecy, and that's not by accident. That's for good reason, and so we get to um, tap into that today and see what it is that they're sharing with us. And uh, man, this, this is a, a text that we celebrate Palm Sunday. And for one, it's, a, it's kind of the kickoff to a, a sequence of events that we celebrate leading up to um, next Sunday, which we celebrate Jesus's uh, resurrection, um, a week that leads up to Jesus's um, arrest, his, uh, his illegal trial, his crucifixion, and again, ultimately his, his resurrection. But it's much, much more than just the kickoff to a sequence of events of what's happening here. Um, and the gospel writers know that. 
And as they have selected and adapted and arranged their material to fit the narrative that they want to share with their original audience, um, to share with us of who Jesus is, the same goes even for the Old Testament writers. And so um, reading through this text, both through Zechariah's prophecy and John's gospel, um, it's very clear what they not only wanted their original audience to know, but they also wrote to us and to us about things concerning Jesus. And they simply want us today, here at Origins in his church, in God's church, um, to be filled with the hope, and not just any hope, but filled with everlasting hope that is offered to us by the King of Peace in Jesus. That's why they have written to us, not just to the audience of their day, but we get to rest in that today as well, church. We get to rest that we have hope. We have a future hope in Christ who is the King of Peace. And we see him marked by that as he enters Jerusalem. And so let's go ahead and pray, and then we will we'll jump in. God, we, uh, we're just thankful that you have, you have chosen a people like us who are imperfect, God. Um, we, have, we have run from you. We have strayed from you. We have done everything to mark ourselves as enemies against you, God. And by our sin, we are justified to be punished by your wrath, God, to be separated from you. And yet, in all of your love for us and to your faithful covenant, God, you have saved us through your Son, Jesus. And so, God, I just I humbly come before you today, and uh, as, our, as our heads are bowed, Lord, that we are, we are submitted to you. And I pray that you would work in every single one of our hearts today, God, that you would move us further along in our walk with you as we celebrate you, as we point to you, as we... As we learn to grow, to not only love you, but love one another well. We love you, Jesus. Be with us in this time in your name. Amen. So, leading up to Jesus's, what they call, triumphant entry into Jerusalem, a few big things happen beforehand that John's Gospel um, uh, connects to. The last big miracle that Jesus had performed, and he had been performing many miracles, obviously, during his ministry. And uh, he had just risen Lazarus, from the grave. Now, that's not just something that we can pass over and say, "Oh, that's a cool thing that you know that Jesus did." Like, he literally rose someone from the grave who had been dead for four days, and there had been people there around Lazarus's tomb. Obviously, his family members, people from the community, religious leaders were there. People were there to witness this, and Jesus approaches the tomb of his good friend, and he weeps. The depth and the weight of sin that has just marred God's creation and has separated us from him. Jesus is standing before, and not only does he see the effects of sin, but he realizes exactly the same death that he is going to have to face and walk to. And as he screams out, Lazarus wakes up and comes walking out of there. I'm pretty sure he did not smell great, but he came walking out nonetheless. And people were not just amazed, like, oh, wow great job, Jesus. They were in utter shock. They didn't know what to say. And the Pharisees started talking amongst one another, saying, oh man, we have a massive problem on our hands. If we don't do something about this, everyone, the entire world, the nations will indeed go after God. 
And so they're conspiring with one another, not only how to get rid of Jesus, as our time in Mark we've seen since the beginning that they've been looking to get rid of him, but they're even looking to get rid of Lazarus. They're trying to kill Lazarus and get rid of him as well to cover up Jesus' miracle. And so Jesus just performs this miracle, and he's traveling from a little community called Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem, and he's traveling into Jerusalem to celebrate what we know is the Passover. And this is a weekly celebration every year where they get to point to God's faithfulness, specifically looking back to when God had delivered Israel from Egypt, from the hand of Pharaoh. And they had delivered him, them not just by crossing through the waters, but they had delivered, he had delivered them from his own wrath, telling Israel to take a, a perfect, unblemished lamb and take its blood and put it over the doorpost so that when God's Spirit would come, he would pass over those whom held to his covenant. And that didn't just involve the Hebrews or the Israelites, but it even involved Egyptians, people who weren't, weren't ethnically, ethnically Jew. These are people where we can see in Scripture, God has called the nations to himself. His desire is that all people will be saved. So people come out of Egypt, not just to be free from Pharaoh's oppression, but to be free from the spiritual oppression so that way they could worship God. This is massive. It's huge. And because of this, this is also pointing forward to a future Passover when Jesus would come. And so they celebrated this every year, and it was really vamped up. I mean, it wasn't just a little household party. It, it, was, a, it was a festival. And thousands of people would have been traveling to Jerusalem during this time. And thousands of people would have been in Jerusalem already celebrating and preparing People would have been inviting others into their homes, getting ready for this. And so it was really, really vamped up. And so as Jesus is traveling from uh, Bethany into Jerusalem, he's obviously, he obviously has a crowd that's following him, a crowd that is with him. You have some people who have witnessed Lazarus, Lazarus literally um, raised from the grave. You have some people who have heard of the miracle that was performed. And so they're waiting at Jerusalem for Jesus to arrive there. And you even have the Pharisees, obviously, that are in the midst of that. So you have just a, a melting pot of so many different people. And they are hoping, they are hoping that um, Jesus here is, is the Messiah. Some are um, convinced and they believe, and there are others there too, who are, they are hoping that he surely could be the Messiah. So it's a mixed crowd that's following them. The tension is high. And so we jump in here, starting in verse 12. And I'll, I'll read through the uh, 12 through 19, and then we'll go through and... And pick it apart. So starting verse 12, it says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, which means, please save, or oh, save. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written by the prophet Zechariah, saying, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. And so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, the, 
you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the entire world has surely gone after him. So it's important to know from the perspective of the crowds and the people as Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And what needs to come to mind is all the way back, we can hop in a little time machine and press the button and jump back to Moses' day. And we see at the end of Moses' book, um, he writes uh, in the last chapter, well, he doesn't write, somebody else writes after his death um, that there is still yet a prophet that they are waiting for that is like Moses. Now, this is really, really important for them and for us to understand that when Moses had led Israel out of Egypt, God had promised that there would be a prophet and someone to come who was even greater than Moses. Because as great as Moses was, he still lacked certain faith. He was still sinful, and he would not be able to lead God's people into the land that God had promised them. And so Moses was pointing them forward to a day when God's Messiah would surely bring them into his presence. Moses had uh, called Israel as soon as they got out of Egypt to consecrate themselves, to, to separate themselves, to make themselves holy because God's presence was about to drop down onto Mount Sinai to dwell with his people. And as they're sitting at the base of the mountain and the thunder's rolling and the lightning's going crazy and the smoke is dropping down, they get scared. And not just scared, but they are stricken with fear to the point to where they look at Moses and they say, do not let him speak to us. Rather, let you speak to us by his words that we may not die. Be our advocate. And so they weren't allowed to walk into the presence of the Lord because obviously anything unholy that is imperfect, looking into God's perfection, his holiness, his righteousness, were incapable. But Moses promised that there would be a day where a king would arise, a prophet better than Moses would arise, and surely bring God's people into, Moses, or into God's presence. And so these people are, are waiting patiently as Israel has been thrown into oppression time after time because of their sin and because of the nations around them. And at the end of Deuteronomy, which is written after the last prophet Malachi had lived, a long, long time, somebody adds a snippet to the end of Deuteronomy that says, And to this day, surely no prophet like Moses has risen. The prophet has not yet come. Has not yet come and performed the miracles and the works that Moses had done, or rather that God had done through Moses. So you can, you can see the anticipation here. Each Passover, each time they're meeting, they're, they're waiting. They're waiting eagerly, hoping that maybe, Maybe this is the time that the Messiah comes. This is the time the prophet like Moses comes. And so the crowds, they have a hope. Could he really be the Messiah? And so they're waving palm branches. They're saying, hell to the king, Hosanna, oh God, save. Save us. They're laying palm branches down as Jesus is, uh, as he is on the colt, on the donkey's colt, walking over these palm branches. This is significant. This is significant as they're, 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 they're allowing or, or they're, they're welcoming the king of kings, the ones that were they hope that he will overthrow their oppressors and bring, bring balance back to God's creation to return to the garden which Adam and Eve had been kicked out of and we haven't been able to return to since. They're hoping that he is the one. But Jesus didn't arrive as a military general yet. 
Jesus didn't arrive as someone who's going to bring justice to Rome or to the physical oppressors. Jesus was going into battle, but he was going into a battle over something that yet we couldn't fully understand. The gospel writers couldn't fully understand. The crowds couldn't fully understand. But they were hoping. And so Jesus, by riding in on this colt, and as they are waving palm branches at him, and as they are shouting his name, oh, save even the king of Israel, this could be. They're fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. And as we see, as we look back to that in those verses, we see, we hop back into our time machine, unless we're back in Deuteronomy, then we've got to fast forward a little bit and go up. Wherever we're at, during Zechariah's time, this is major due to the fact that Israel had just returned from yet another captivity, another imprisonment. You see, the prophets for a long time, is before Moses, before they conquered the promised land, Moses said, it's very simple. Obey God and you're going to live. Same thing we hear in the garden. Disobey God and you're going to die. You're going to be cast out. And Israel obviously just has the hardest time obeying God. They continue to disobey God. And prophets come sent from God to tell them, hey, you need to obey God and follow God. Get rid of your idols or else you will surely be taken into captivity by the same things that you were giving your life to. And we see sooner or later that this exact thing happens. That Israel gets taken into captivity. They're, uh, they're, they're attacked by Babylon. They come in and ransack Judah and Israel. They destroy the temple. Everything is in ruins. They bring them off into prison. But God promises them that his faithfulness will stand. That even through this exile, he'll use this exile to bring them back to the land that he had promised them. And so as they return, they're commanded to build a temple. They're commanded to build a temple. And as they're commanded to build a temple, it's for a few specific reasons. You can read about that specifically in Ezra and Nehemiah. Zechariah, who is the prophet during that time, he wants them to build this temple. Not that God will come and dwell in this specific temple made of human hands, but that it would be a sign of the hope of the future that the Messiah would surely come. That the Messiah would come and he would dwell and he would live with his people. And so he commanded and he called Israel to rebuild this temple that would be a sign of hope for them. So not only were the people here as Jesus was entering Jerusalem expecting a hope or hoping for a Messiah, but the people during Zechariah's day, as they were building a temple, they were hoping for the Messiah to come. They were hoping for a Messiah like David to come and bring Israel back into the presence of God. But there's a caveat to that. Zechariah tells them, in order for God to surely come and dwell with you, you must obey Him. He will come if you obey, if you live to His standard. Obviously, they failed to do that. Zechariah calls them to repent instead of, instead of repenting after God has already bought, brought His wrath upon them, as they did in Babylon. He said, repent now. Turn to, God now, turn to God now. Run to God now. They failed to do that. They fall into the same exact sin that had left them into Babylon in the first place and brought them into exile. But also, too, they were extremely dejected. They had just built this temple, and they said, man, this, this isn't as beautiful. This isn't as big. This isn't as great as Solomon's temple. 
If God didn't return then, how is God going to return now and dwell with us here? But Zechariah had a different vision in mind. It wasn't about that temple that was so important. That temple was supposed to be a sign of the hope that was to come. Not just for the Jews, but for the world, for the nations. And the Messiah would surely come. And one day the Messiah would come on a war horse, and he would come in military fashion. And he would even use his own people to turn against the nations and utterly destroy them because of their sin and their judgment. But before he comes to bring judgment upon the world, he first comes in peace. He first comes as a commander offering peace to those before he comes back and returns in vengeance. So we read here in Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow should, shall be cut off, and he shall seek peace, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river, the Euphrates River, to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The Messiah is coming not just to free us from, as prisoners from a physical oppression. He's coming to free us from our sin that has brought the verdict of eternal death upon us in the sight of God and his righteous judgment against us. That before he comes in military fashion, he must come first offering peace. Not only must he come offering peace, but he desires to come and offer peace to us. To extend, extend the invitation for us to stop running from the ways that have separated us from God and to run to him, to trust in him, to walk with him. In a temple that was promised, as we look back, and the faithful promise that he had given all the way back in the, Garden of Gen in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, this promise of a, of, of a future kingdom, not of a, of a physical thing built by human hands, but a future kingdom that he himself would bring, this future kingdom cannot be built by human hands, and God can't come dwell if man lives perfectly, because we can't live perfectly. But in order for God's kingdom to come and for God to come and dwell with us and bring the new heavens and the new earth, there has to be perfect obedience somewhere. It has to happen. And Israel was incapable of it. We are incapable of it. Jesus is the only one capable of it. The Son of God sent from God the Father to come and to embody Israel, to represent Israel, to represent the world in the way that Adam was incapable of doing, in the way that Moses was incapable of doing in the way that David was incapable, in the way that we are incapable, he comes to embody us, but he must suffer first, and he does so through bringing peace. This temple would be built not of human hands that we see in Zechariah, but it would be a new temple, a temple that God would pour his spirit out over us, his church. God would build his new temple of us, as you read in Second Peter, you see, he says, we, we're, we're no longer a temple made of human hands. We're a temple of living stones. And Jesus is our cornerstone. This is the temple being built. When people come to faith in Christ, they go from death to life. This is the temple being built. 
But in order for this temple to be built and for God to come and dwell, and there must be obedience and there must be suffering brought by the king of peace. So as Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, as he is entering into Jerusalem on this colt, these people are expecting a military leader. Rightfully so, I would have expected the same exact thing. Your life and the history of your people have been nothing but oppression, have been nothing but disobedience, has been nothing but being attacked on. And so you're waiting. And if David was so great and the Messiah was to come from his line, I would expect to a military general. We even see Peter, as we read through Mark. He confessed Jesus is the Christ. And we're like, yes, man, Peter did something right. And then literally not too much longer afterwards, we see Peter bringing Jesus aside like, hey, man, why are you talking about death and suffering and all this stuff? Like, no, 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 we're like, let's not speak of those things. And Jesus rebukes him. It wasn't, they weren't able to fully understand those things. Jesus must first come in obedience. He must first come offering peace and doing so by suffering on our behalf and creating in us a new heart so that way the right temple can be built so God one day can dwell in our presence, that we can dwell in his presence, that he will live with us, we will live with him. This is the day that is spoken about all the way from the prophets backwards, moving forward is the day of the Lord. One day the king will return to bring judgment upon the nations, all those who reject him, who have rejected Jesus. But yet on that day, we will be passed over and we will receive salvation because our righteousness is not our own, but our righteousness was bought by the suffering servant, the king of peace who offered peace to us. And we walk by faith alone, through his grace alone, and by Christ alone, his death and his resurrection. As Jesus is marching forward into Jerusalem, this is the war that he sees in front of him. And again, as we just finished up Mark, we see what the toil and the anguish that he was in in the garden before going to his death. The anguish that he was in, the heaviness of the weight, not just of the physical death that he would take, but the spiritual war that he was fighting. The spiritual, the spiritual principalities of this world, Satan and his army, the evil of this world were the ones guiding all the evil. They're the ones guiding Pharaoh, guiding Rome, guiding all these evil um, empires to bring injustice upon God's justice. It was this thing that was most important, not the others. And Jesus had to defeat this first before returning. And so I can't imagine walking into Jerusalem, Jesus is facing his death. He's looking his death in the face just as he stood before Lazarus's tomb, knowing very well what must happen, even though the crowds didn't fully understand But he has come, and he has come to save us by the blood of his covenant, as we read in Zechariah. Not only will his kingdom be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, and will be unending forever, but as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The unique Hebrew root and verbs in this, if you look back to the end of Genesis, when Joseph gets thrown into a waterless pit, an empty well. His brothers are so hateful towards him because he is shown favor upon by his dad. And they throw him in this pit to let him die, to allow wild animals to come after and kill him, to murder him, to throw him in there and leave him. But the last moment, his brother Judah, in whom God would um, bring the promise of the Messiah through his family line, said, hey, let's let's not do this. Let's, Let's... Let's uh, instead uh, sell him off into slavery from the caravan that's passing by, the Ishmaelites. And they will bring him off somewhere and bring him into slavery. 
He was doomed for his death, but God used what they meant for evil and turned it for his good and the good of those who love him. And he goes off to Egypt, and God ends up allowing him to walk through and uh, climb up the hierarchy. And before you know it, he's basically in charge of Egypt. The only person more powerful than him is Pharaoh. And God not only delivers Joseph, but he uses Joseph to deliver his brothers, Egypt, and the entire nations from a famine that hit the land. But he was doomed in a waterless pit with no hope unless it was God, God's guiding hand in that. He's using the same phrases here in this waterless pit that we will be freed from, prisoners will be freed from. We have been stuck in a waterless pit, an empty well with no hope because our sin has kept us down there. And Jesus has come as the King of peace and the Prince of peace to offer us freedom from that prison, an eternal prison that can't be escaped unless it's through God's grace and his grace alone. This is what he's marching towards to on this Palm Sunday as he's entering in Jerusalem. The king of peace coming to offer peace to deliver us from our imprisonment. And so we see later on in John, as we finish up, we see, we see the response. And John writes, he says, you know, his disciples did not fully understand these things at first, which again, It would be hard to. But when Jesus was glorified, after he was resurrected, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. They continued to praise his name. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has indeed gone after him. This is different from what they said back in uh, John chapter 11. The chief priests, they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And they're like, what do we do? And the high priest Caiaphas is like, you guys are idiots. This is what's going to happen. We're going to allow him to continue what he's doing. And we will actually separate ourselves from him. And we will cling to Rome. And we'll say, hey, this guy is causing an uproar. We're not from him. Get rid of him because he's even um, attacking Rome's empire in Rome's name, claiming himself to be a king. But little did he know that the bad and the evil that, he, that they had planned and desired, God would turn it and be used again for his good. And indeed, Jesus would be the Savior, not just of Israel in that year through their eyes, but he would be the Savior of all of us, saving us from the, water, the waterless pit. Now, I love the connections of Scripture, how we can do as best we can to go against God, and God will yet turn it for His good, and at the same time, offer us peace. Jesus Himself was offering the worst of the worst peace during this time to the Pharisees, to Barabbas, to you, to me. He offers us peace. So we see how at first, man, the crowd hopes. Could He really be? The crowd hopes, committed followers of Jesus, they know, even though they don't fully understand, they know that this is the prophet. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. We trust in him. We see an ancient hope from Zechariah's time, an ancient hope that is dressed in peace, that is to save us by the blood of his covenant from the waterless pit. And lastly, here we see that the enemy's hope is lost. It said, indeed, the world has gone after him. There's nothing we can do about it. And what happens when you get 
when you dig yourself into a hole, you just keep digging yourself deeper and deeper. Sin, sin will continue to make irrational actions in us. And we see that here. They said, man, the whole world has gone after him. He must be that evil. We, we, we must arrest him now. And we see that they do so illegally in the middle of the night, bringing Jesus to an illegal trial, condemning him, and eventually putting him on the cross and murdering him. A hope is lost for them, but hope for us is not lost. We have gained a hope. And Jesus, on this Palm Sunday, as he enters Jerusalem, as they are praising him to hope to be this military leader, he knows that he is the king of peace, who's come to first offer us peace before he returns one day. You know, it's like when you, when you have to punish your child. Cooper's only two, so a lot of the things he does, he just doesn't know. He's grown. He's an emotional kid. But uh, we, we decided, you know, hey, put him in the corner, take a couple minutes to, you know, chill out and to gather himself. Um, so before that, you know, we, we count to three or so, and that's kind of the period of offering him peace. I'm just like, bro, I'm just here for peace. I just want peace. Chill out. Go say sorry to your mom. But as soon as he continues on, he doesn't, there comes a time where he's going to have to be disciplined. Now, and on a greater scale, Jesus comes in this moment, all right, not just to put us in a corner. He comes to us offering us peace, sending us peace, offering the worst of the worst peace. It doesn't matter what you have done. It doesn't matter what sin you have committed. It doesn't matter how far you have run from God. Today and now, the gospel writer John, he wants you to know that there is peace that is offered to you. Two reasons why he wrote his whole gospel in the first place, as intense and as in-depth as it is. Those who don't know Jesus, they would believe in Jesus. And those who do know Jesus, that you would grow in your faith. You grow in your faith by the same gospel that saved us. We would continue to grow in our faith. So even though they didn't have a full understanding they saw these things afterwards, saying, indeed, indeed, this is the Christ. What's unique, too, is some of the crowd, I don't really know how much, but some of the crowd, whether it's a majority or not, who are cheering for him, Hosanna, oh, save us, God save, praise him, praise his name. Five days later, we'll be screaming out, crucify him, kill him. Yes, crucify him, as the Pharisees were, were uh manipulating them in the crowds and getting them to say these things, to push against their agenda. And here's another thing, brothers and sisters, is that our hope is going to be grounded in Christ and will be solid in Him, or there will be a, a, a hopeless hope that by any swaying conviction or by any swaying argument or by anything that anybody says, it'll drop you to the exact opposite side. As these people in this moment, as they're claiming for Him to be the Messiah, there's some in the group Obviously, the Pharisees directing it, who in a moment when he wasn't the Messiah that they wanted him to be, that he was speaking of suffering and being last instead of first, and that if I'm going to suffer, you're going to suffer. If you're my follower, it's, uh, this can't be the Messiah that's going to come from David. This can't be the Messiah. He's going to come and bring vengeance upon the world. But if God were to return before Jesus came and was the suffering servant for us, and he were to bring vengeance upon the world, he would have to destroy everything in which sin dwells in. And guess what? Sin dwells in every heart. So the suffering servant must have come first. Jesus had to have come first to bring us back in a relationship with God. And he does so offering peace. So what do, what, where do we go from here? How, how do we respond as a church? For one, we can be hopeful on this Palm Sunday 
We can be hopeful knowing that the king of peace has offered us peace. We don't have to live a perfect life for God to return. Jesus has done that. We get to trust in him and his righteousness and his work. And through his blood and through his righteousness, we are counted righteous. And we get to live the type of lives that Peter has called us to live, holy and separated, building a church in such a way where God can come and dwell with his people. And it won't be us building it, but it will be God's spirit poured out on us, building his church all across the world. So for one, man, we, we, we hope for Jesus' return. We hope for his return. It's easy for me to get stuck in my own little, my own little shell, and I'm like, man, no, Jesus, I want you to return for sure, but like, man, I, I also love everything you're doing in my life right now, and you know, it's, it's good. But then I look outside of that, and I can say, man, like, there's even there's still brokenness. There's still sin. There's still hurt. I look out a little bit further into our city. I look out, you know, you can watch the news. Awful things happen. You're like, God, like how long? How much longer? Like return, oh God, return, please. When is our Messiah going to return? We can kind of connect ourselves with Israel. When is he going to return? Could this be the year? Could this, could this be the time? Man, however much time God has given us, we must not take lightly. The same way that he has given us peace, we must offer that same peace to others. That others would know that Jesus has come to offer them peace, to free them from the waterless pit that they are eternally chained to. So my charge and my encouragement and for us to respond is, for one, man, if there's anybody who, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, believe in Jesus. I pray that you would believe in Jesus. That through these scriptures, you would be convinced the Holy Spirit would do a work in your heart and you'd be saved, that Jesus would save you. That you would come to, to see the, the beauty of what the King has brought us, the King of peace has brought us. doesn't matter what we have done, doesn't matter what we have been a part of, it doesn't matter what our past is, all have fallen short of God's glory and we all must surrender to Christ in order for us to be saved. Not only is it a must, but it is a joyful thing. Man, these last 10, 15 years of my life, if, if I were to continue to follow down my path, I would have still been eternally destroyed, but my life outside of that would have been just awful. It has been a joy, even through the hardest moments of my life and brokenness in my life and family and stuff, to cling to the cross, to know that Jesus has offered me peace. And to do that, not privately, but publicly with my church family, with my brothers and sisters around me. And I'm sure you guys can say the same. Not only is it a must that we must be saved, but it is a joyful thing for us to be saved as a church family. It's a good thing to walk in. So believe in Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, man, I compel you to continue to seek the same gospel in which saved you in the first place. Continue to pursue Christ. Continue to build your faith. You know, we're, the last few months we've been walking really directly through discipleship stuff, and we've been in discipleship groups. Discipleship is simply preparing each other for eternity. We get to prepare each other for eternity and see the church built. And that looks like a couple different, different ways. To see the hope that Jesus has set before us and the joy that he had set before him is on this Palm Sunday as he was walking into Jerusalem is the same hope and the same joy, even through the most pain that he gives to us. We get to share that and build each other open, up in the same hope. But practically, that just looks like a couple, a couple different things. One looks like committing ourselves to the scriptures. If we want to know who Jesus is, if we want to continue to build in this hope that he has offered us, 
as the king of peace, we must stay glued to the scriptures. And I don't mean that in a legalistic way of check off a box. I mean, our very life and the air that we breathe comes from the scriptures. Be tied to them, be glued to them. Fall in love with the scriptures and seeing the beauty in which God has unraveled for us. And our discipleship groups have been a perfect example of that. We get to hold one another accountable. We get to encourage one another. Aaron and I get to send text back and forth to each other. We're, we're visual people, so we send the Gospel Project videos. And it's got a bunch of cool visuals and cartoon stuff that they're drawing all at once. It holds my attention for more than five seconds. But encouraging one another to be built up in His Word, to grow in His Word as we prepare each other for eternity. Because as Israel was building this physical temple, we get to be a part of building God's temple for Him to come and bring the new heavens and the new earth and dwell in. Our missions team was able to be a part of that last week in Guatemala. We're able to be a part of that in our city, in our neighborhoods, in Boston, and other parts across the country. We get to see God's kingdom growing. In other parts of the world where people are traveling weeks to go climb up a mountain to worship and gather together, the kingdom is being built. And in Revelation 7, we see the culmination of this when Jesus returns and all nations and all tongues, all tribes, all peoples will be gathered around the throne. And the one thing we all have in common is Jesus the one who has offered us peace has saved us. He will come and dwell with his people. I cannot wait for that day. But we have to commit ourselves to the scriptures so that our hope may be rooted in the true Messiah, not in a Messiah that we want to mold in our own fashion. Second, we need to commit ourselves to one another. Commit ourselves to one another in our in our uh, accountability groups, in our, in, our, in, our, in our devotional groups, in our community groups, here on Sunday eating good food together, drinking good coffee, serving together in the city, committing ourselves to one another. Again, our faith is personal, but it is never private. We personally are not just being saved. The church is being saved. We are all being saved as one people, as the temple in which God will come and dwell in one day. So commit ourselves to one another. I don't know what I would do without you guys. It would be a super boring and sad life without my church family. My family just loves, loves being able to be a part of everything that our church gets to be a part of. In the small moments and the big moments, it's great. Man, commit ourselves to one another, church. And lastly, commit ourselves to the Great Commission. Commit ourselves to the Great Commission. This is Jesus acting it out right here as he, as he is going into Jerusalem. It's going to be a really ramped up week. A really ramped up week, but he himself, before he ascends into heaven, commands his disciples since all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. He has commanded us to go and make disciples, again, to preach the gospel to unbelievers and to build one another up. That's making disciples as we are living our life. That is how we prepare for God to come and dwell with us. We don't know the time or the hour, but we get to do that. We get to offer the same peace in which the King of Peace has arrived on, in humility, submitted to the Father's will on this Palm Sunday, we get to carry out that same mission. As we look straight ahead of us, no matter what pain and suffering lies before us in order to get the gospel to people who do not believe, we know the joy that is set further beyond that in eternity with Christ. No matter what the cost is, we get to be a part of that. And ultimately, being led by the Holy Spirit in submission and obedience. We're not going to bring Christ here by our, our obedience. He will come because he has already been obedient and he has defeated death, our sin, and the grave. And that's what we get to share next 
Sunday. That's what we get to celebrate. We get to celebrate it every day, every week. But we get to slow down this week and we get to pay closer attention to it. And so my last encouragement, church, is find time throughout this week to read through the last week of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry here on earth, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. To, to read through that. To slow down and reflect on that and see what that means for us. Such a beautiful thing, church. We have hope because our King of Peace has come to offer us peace and freedom. And I pray the same for, for those in this room who don't know Jesus, people outside of this room who don't know Jesus, the people in this room, us Christians, brothers and sisters, that we would continue to strive together, growing in the hope that Jesus has filled us with. Let's pray. God, again, we, we thank you for your word. Thank you for making us more like you. Lord, continue to, continue to work in us, continue to work in our church. Lord, I pray this week as we go back into the busyness and the, the hecticness, Lord, that you would, you would root in us the same hope we see here in the scriptures. That as the crowds shout out to Jesus, that we would do the same this week, except we're from a different vantage point. We can see that Jesus surely is the Messiah. That he has risen from the grave. And so, Lord, allow us to, to praise that with our lives. No matter the, the suffering and the brokenness and the pain we go through, we know our hope lies before us, and it is in you. Come quickly, Jesus, but until then, continue to build your temple, your church, for us to dwell and live with one another, and most importantly, with you. We love you, we praise you, in your name, amen.